And as uh, Reuben mentioned, you know, as we come to the end of the year, as we turn the page to a new one, it is a time to reflect, right? It's time to reflect on the previous year, things that went well, maybe some things that didn't. And as a result of that, it's also a time to make resolutions, isn't it? Yeah, some of your, maybe, yeah. You know, ones that you're going to make this week and then by next month they're done, right? But, but it is a time we often seek to resolve to do things maybe differently, in the coming year. But also as we enter into a new year, it's a good time to remember. It's a good time to refocus. It's a good time to remind ourselves of our mission, to remind ourselves of what we are doing here and what is around us. In the year 1898, H.G. Wells, he published a book called The War of the Worlds. It was a story, right, about a Martian invasion in southern England. And it really became one of the most talked about science fiction books in modern history. It's very interesting. In the opening paragraph of the book, listen to what he says. With infinite complacency, man went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. Yet across the gulf of space, others regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly drew their plans against us. Now, of course, he was speaking of a fictitious race of alien beings, though these days sometimes people are talking about Martians. But he was talking about a fictitious race of alien beings. But I couldn't help but see the parallels in what he said here and what we face today in the real world. Right. Because today many people do walk about the earth in complacency, thinking that all that they see is all that there is. Thinking that there is no threat of some otherworldly forces drawing plans against us. But we know better, don't we? We know what the scripture says. And so as we turn the page to this new year, I thought it would be helpful these next few weeks to remember and refocus to remind ourselves that we are on a mission and to remind ourselves that we are in a war. You and I are in a war, whether you realize it or not. Paul said in Ephesians 6:12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In 2 Corinthians 10:3, he tells us we do not war according to the flesh. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. And Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says the devil is prowling about. Our adversary prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. These and many other passages remind us that you and I are in a war. A war none of us can avoid. A war none of us can escape. How often do you remind yourself of that? How well prepared are you for this battle? Do you know how to engage the enemy? So Again, the next few weeks, I thought it would be helpful for us to spend some time in Ephesians 6. We're going to continue in our mini-series in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, where we're given the most extensive description and instruction on spiritual warfare. On what this war is, on who is involved in this war, and how do we engage in it. So I want to turn your attention, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll be starting in verse 10. 
And as you're doing that, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Father, we do thank You for Your faithfulness. We've seen that throughout this year in both the difficult times and the good times. We've seen Your sovereign hand at work in our lives in many different ways. Lord, this morning, as we consider what Your Word says about this war that we are engaged in, that God, You would strengthen our hearts, refocus us to Your mission that has been given to us, and Lord, that we would find our strength in Christ to engage in this war. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. All right, Ephesians 6.10. Paul gives his final instruction as he closes this letter to the Ephesians, and he says this in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of His strength. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul begins here in verse 10 with the word finally. He's coming to the close of his letter. He has one final instruction for the Ephesians and for us. And in this letter, he began in the first three chapters, focusing attention on what God has done in Christ for our salvation. And then in the last three chapters, he gives attention to how do we respond to that? And he gives over almost 40 commands in how we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice here he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. As he uh, has given those 40 commands, uh, some of which we go, man, this is going to be difficult. How do we carry these out? I can't live this way. I can't do all of these things. So Paul says, look, finally, be strong in the Lord. Notice it's in the passive voice. We don't gain strength from ourselves. He said, be strengthened. Find strength in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will strengthen you to do these things. He will give you the grace as you abide in Him to carry out these commands. But as he says these words, be strengthened in the Lord, he's not just looking back to what he has said before, he's also looking ahead to what he's about to say. We need to be strengthened not only to walk in a manner that pleases and honors Christ, we also need to be strengthened in Christ because we are in a war and we face a powerful enemy. We will only be able to fight that enemy by abiding in Christ. And so here Paul says in verses 10 to 20 how we are to engage in this war. And first he does so by describing the enemy that we face. The enemy that we face. Because, right, to know how to fight any war, we have to know the enemy, don't we? We have to understand him. In order to be successful, we need to know who he is and know his strategies. Know his strengths, know his weaknesses, know his tendencies. And so that's where Paul begins as he opens up to us this spiritual war that we are all engaged in. He first describes our enemy. And so this morning I want us to consider first to know your enemy, know his nature and know his strategy. Look at verse 10 with me again where we're going to look at first know your enemy. Let me read again these words. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the might of his strength, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Again, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but 
against the rulers, the authorities, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice here, Paul says, be strengthened in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God. Why? Look at verse 11. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, why did he say that? Notice he says, because look, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other human beings. You know that, right? You know who your enemy is? It's not other people. It's not other people. They may be the instruments of the enemy at times, but they are not the enemy. Brothers and sisters, they are the mission field. We need to remind ourselves of that. We need to remember what Jesus said. Make disciples of all the nations. Not just people that you like or people that are nice or people that will listen. Make disciples of all the nations. He said, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Didn't Jesus say that he came to seek and save the lost? Didn't Jesus tell us or or die for us while we were his enemies? You know, at times I think we can lose sight of this, especially in our culture these last few years. Many lines have been drawn. As Christians, we can't do that. Certainly morally, we need to draw lines. I understand that. Biblically, we need to draw lines in the sense of what we believe and what we live. But not in the sense of who we interact with. Not in the sense of who we reach out to. We are called to go to the mission field to make disciples of all the nations. Not to divide out people who differ from us politically, who differ from us morally, who differ from us ethnically, who differ from us culturally, or even in their religious beliefs. Remember what, Luke, what Jesus said in Luke 6? He said, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago um, when I just had returned from my trip in South Asia. And um, I think I shared with you one of the events that took place. We were visiting with a couple of imams and this guy showed up. Remember that I mentioned to you? Uh, He shows up. He actually turned out to be a leader of a terrorist organization that had not long before burned many churches, burned many Christian homes in the area. And this guy just shows up and he starts interacting with us. And it was not a pleasant conversation. He was uh, getting very intense. But I'm sitting with my, my friend, a pastor there. And rather than be silent, you know what this guy does? <laughs> he tries to reach out to this man, this leader of a terrorist organization who at any moment could just cry out that we were blaspheming against the law and it would be over for us. This guy risking his own life and later as I reflected, mine too. But but he said, and he tried to share with him, even from the Quran, where some examples where the Prophet Muhammad had showed forgiveness and mercy. And then he said, even Jesus, who they revere as a prophet, he said, even Jesus, the prophet said, love your enemies. And in that moment, I'm sitting there going, this guy wasn't our enemy. As terrible the things he had done and who he represented, the organization he represented, my friend realized he, though, is the mission field. 
And that struck me. It was used by the enemy in some terrible ways against our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, but he still needed Christ. Our fellow human beings are not the enemy. Again, they're the mission field. And Paul reminds us of that. He says the true enemy is not flesh and blood. That's who our battle is against. It is against. Notice he describes them, which I'll get to that in a minute. But first, I, I want to mention to you that word struggle. It's an interesting word. He didn't use a Greek word that would mean like war or fight or battle. He actually used the word pale, pale, which is literally to wrestle. You know, wrestling was a common sport in Paul's day. And I think he used that word intentionally in order to remind us, to, to note to us, we need to be ready for close combat. For personal struggle. This was not going to be some far off battle in a distant land because we fight an enemy who knows us well. We fight an enemy who understands our weak points. We fight an enemy who knows our name and who will not hesitate to come in for close combat any chance he can get. Who is that enemy? Paul refers to him here as the devil. Diabolos in Greek. It means... Uh, slanderer, actually. His most common name in Scripture is Satan, Satan. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew term adversary or opponent. He's also called the serpent of old, the great dragon in Revelation 12. He's referred to by Peter as a roaring lion in Ephesians 6 as the evil one. He's referred to as the tempter in Matthew 4, the accuser in Revelation 12, the ruler of this world in John 16, the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. He's also called Belial, or worthless in 2 Corinthians 6. Some refer to him as Lucifer, which is kind of interesting because that's a, really a, the Latin translation for morning star in Isaiah 14, which may not even be referring to Satan there. And it's only used once in the King James Version. Luke 11 calls him Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. In fact, Revelation 12 tells us that when Satan rebelled, he carried with him a third of the stars of heaven. So he's not alone, is he? He's not alone. And notice here, Paul uses the plural when he describes our enemy in chapter 6, verse 12. He says we battle rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. These are the same terms that he used for these spiritual beings earlier in Ephesians 1.23 and also in Ephesians 3.10. Now, why doesn't he just call them demons or evil spirits. Why does he use these titles, these descriptions? Well, I think he's telling us here, he's reminding us here that there are various ranks and responsibilities in the spirit realm. Not all spiritual beings were created equal, right? There's Michael, the archangel. Satan as well was an archangel, one of the most powerful angels in heaven. There are others who rule over particular regions. Uh, we see this in Daniel chapter 10. It describes the, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. There are still others with lesser roles, but all have power, as seen in these terms, rulers, authorities, world forces. And notice Paul says they are all of this darkness. They are in darkness. They bring darkness. There's no light or good or truth in them. And we know these things, but it's important to be reminded of them. As Paul said in 
Acts 26, he said, Jesus told him to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Colossians 1.13 says that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And then at the end of our section here in Ephesians 6.12, these beings are described as spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. And there I don't think he's giving us another category of demons. I think he's giving us a summary description of them. That they are these spirits full of evil who come from the heavenly realms. In other words, they're not beings that are confined to some room somewhere awaiting an assignment. Right? I think we have misperceptions from Hollywood and other media about what demons do and who they are. But listen, they actively roam about, constantly probing for weaknesses, continually looking for opportunities to attack. Remember in Job? Job 1, Satan appeared before God and was asked, from where do you come? And Satan says, oh, just walking around the earth. Or as I read earlier in 1 Peter 5, he says, be on the alert, be sober. Your adversary, and that's the Greek term for Satan, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Doing what? Sightseeing? Seeking for someone to devour. That's a sobering statement. Think about that for a minute. Satan and his demons are roaming about. Continually on the lookout. They're on a mission. And again, Satan's not just out for a stroll. He is roaming about as a roaring lion. Now, when lions roar, that means they're on the hunt. They're hungry. And when hungry lions are hungry, they will eat anything that moves. Satan's on a mission, brothers and sisters, to devour Not just somebody out there, but you, your children, your grandchildren. He hates you. He despises you. He will show no mercy. Why do you think it is that our children are being exposed to the things they're being exposed to these days? Why is it that uh, the average age of a child who sees pornography on the Internet is eight or nine years old now? Why is that? Satan doesn't wait for your kids to get to a certain age. Okay, now they're old enough. Now they're in, No, he goes after them as early as possible. And he'll go after you any chance he gets. And I'm not trying to be dramatic here. I'm trying to remind us. We're in a battle. We're engaged. Are you distracted? Are you, dis- are you complacent? Do you remind yourself of these things? Do you think about this when you consider your children? You can't protect them from him yourself. I'm going to move them here or take them out of this situation. And we need to be wise parents. I'm not saying not to do that at all. We need to be discerning. We need to be protective. But don't think ultimately you can hide them from Satan's attacks. You can't hide from Satan's attacks. What Paul is saying here, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against a powerful enemy and his minions. But I don't want any of us to be 
lulled into thinking we're not in a battle right now. We are, whether you realize it or not. Some Christians seem to live life as if comfort is the goal and ease and escaping difficulty is the main focus. That's not it at all. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're on a mission for Him. And it's a mission that carries us right into the front lines. And if you don't see signs of a spiritual war going on in your life, there are maybe a couple reasons for that. One is God may be graciously giving you a respite. <laughs> or, perhaps, Satan doesn't see you as a threat. You know, when the Civil War in America began, some thought it would be fun and novel to set up their tables for meals and watch the battles as they were carried out in the fields in front of them. There are actually people that were doing that. Hey, let's have a picnic. And let's watch. Oh, look, at the, the, the armies have formed. Well, guess what happened? It didn't take long for them to be consumed in the battle themselves. The terrible ends. To be so near a battle and think you won't be affected? Brothers and sisters, again, as we turn to this new year, let's remind ourselves of this thing. We're, in a, we're on a mission together. And that mission means we're being brought into this very war, the spiritual war. Satan will give no amnesty to anyone. He wants you to burn in hell. And if he can't accomplish that, then he wants to render you ineffective and useless in this war. A few years ago, um, we were in Southern California. There was a mountain lion that had gotten loose, was roaming about the city, actually, uh, there in uh, Tahunga. And, you know, as news went out, it was kind of interesting to see there weren't a lot of people outside walking around. We would go by in the streets, you know, parking lots were empty. Why is that? They were aware, you know, mountain lions are pretty fierce. I've seen them up close. I've seen what they can do. So people were wisely staying in their homes because they were aware. They reminded themselves, we need to do the same thing. We too have a lion that's roaming about. Seeking someone to devour. This lion is a crafty lion. This lion has had millennia to study us. This lion has a strategy. He has a tactic. Are you prepared? Do you know how to engage the enemy? How are you being equipped? Is listening to one sermon a week enough? Is reading the Bible as you have time and praying as there is time enough? few minutes in here in church or in a Bible study, is that enough? Do you think these are sufficient to defend you in this war? Are you actively engaged? Do you remind yourself of these things? Paul says in verse 11, we must put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He tells us here, how do we fight? We put on the armor of God so that we can stand firm against. Notice he uses the word here, schemes. It's this idea of a, of a strategy, a method, a process, a plan. He has plans. He has a strategy. He has a method. 
And that brings us to our second point this morning. We are to know our enemy, know his nature. We also need to know his strategies. The Bible's been very clear and helpful to us about this. It tells us exactly what he's about, exactly what he's doing, exactly how he's engaging in this warfare. And so what I'd like to do is just cover maybe five ways, and there are many others, but five key ways that Satan engages in this war, his strategy, his schemes. And the first and primary scheme is this, to pervert the truth. To undermine the truth. I mentioned this back in October, I think, when we were talking about the Reformation. What are the first words recorded out of Satan's mouth in the Bible? Did God really say? Right? Remember to Eve? Did God really say not to eat from that tree? You won't die. What's he doing there? He's trying to cloud the truth, isn't he? trying to twist it, to turn it. And ever since that day in the garden, this has been his primary strategy. That's why Satan is so active in false teaching. That's why he's so active in false religions. First uh, Timothy four says this in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul described false teachers in Second Corinthians 11 as False apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You see this, this, this deception. Most people think that Satan's main activity, and we see this in the movies and everything, is that temptation. That's the main thing he does in this world is he tempts people. And certainly he does tempt people. But I don't think that's the main thing that he focuses on. He knows Romans 3.10. He knows that all of us are sinners. He knows Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. He's read the Bible. He knows these things, so he doesn't really have to worry about whether or not we're going to sin. What he worries about is that we might find out how to be delivered from that sin. How to be forgiven. That's more of his primary concern. And so he seeks to distort truth, to twist it, to undermine it, to confuse it, to cloud it, to get people to... He'll, he'll give just enough truth and then shade it so people will believe a lie. He's been doing that from day six maybe, or we don't know exactly when he appeared before Eve, but somewhere around that time. And this is why we need to be immersed in His Word, brothers and sisters. This is why we need to spend time regularly reading His Word, meditating on His Word, memorizing His Word, listening to sermons about His Word, speaking His Word to one another, teaching His Word to our children and our grandchildren. Because that's the only source of truth. The Spirit only works through His Word. Paul told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2. He said, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul here says, Patiently instruct even those who are in opposition, because they're ensnared, they're captive, they're captured by Satan. And perhaps God, through the truth, may grant them repentance. 
There's a second scheme that Satan uses. It's connected to, related to the first, and it is to thwart the gospel. What truth is it he wants to distort more than any other? What truth is it that he wants to cloud? There's a lot of truths that that he could attack, but there's one primary truth that he wants to make sure nobody understands that everyone is confused about because it is that truth that God uses to bring salvation to deliver us from his kingdom of darkness and what is that truth the gospel the gospel he wants to corrupt it by adding to it he wants to weaken it by taking away from it He wants to keep the world blinded to it. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4 describes Him as the God of this age who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's His focus. He's developed all of these religious systems in the world. And why do you think these systems have so many things in common? Why is it that... that They all focus on, you know, doing good to one another. There's a lot of similarities. My wife and I have been to a lot of different countries in the world. Countries dominated by Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Catholicism. Boy, they all do sound really similar. In fact, in the conversation we were having with those imams, they were directing our attention to the commonalities. No, Satan adds works to the gospel. Have you noticed that every religious system except biblical Christianity contains some work you need to do to be right with God? Every one of them. Some effort on our part to achieve heaven, to achieve nirvana, to achieve that blessed state in the afterlife, whatever it is according to that religion. Every one of them except Christianity. Right? Spurgeon said something to that effect when he said, every religion says do, do, do. Christianity says done, done, done. <laughs> right? Christ alone. Only in Christ alone can we come to know the truth. Only Christ alone has provided the means for us to be saved. There's nothing else we can do in and of ourselves but believe. But every other religious system, there's a twist. No, no, no. And sometimes Satan will even convince people, yeah, yeah, accept Christ, but also do this. Satan adds works to the gospel to take away from the only work that can save. Clever. And we have all these religions, many of which acknowledge Christ as a good teacher, many of which even revere Him. Some even call Him Savior, but all of them add good works, human effort in order to be saved. But as Paul said in Galatians 2.21, if righteousness comes only through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There's no need for a death on the cross. If there is something we can do, Isaiah 55 though says all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. We're trying to use them in order to be right with God. Now, Satan's scheme to thwart the gospel is not only to pervert the message, but also to prevent the message from going out. Again, if he can't keep you from hearing the gospel and being saved, he's going to try to use you to be ineffective and not share that with others. 
Again, he's called the God of this world who's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. In the parable in Luke 8, when the parable of the sower, when Jesus describes and he says, some seed falls on the hard ground and is plucked up by the birds. And he explained in that parable, the bird is Satan plucking it up from hardened hearts. Second Thessalonians or first Thessalonians two, Paul says Satan hindered him many times from going to the Thessalonians. Jesus tells the church in Smyrna in Revelation two, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison so that you will be tested. Satan is doing all he can to keep the gospel from going out. All that he can to keep perishing souls from hearing the one truth that can deliver them from his kingdom of darkness. The more active you are in proclaiming this truth, the more you will feel his breath on your neck. Brother, I mentioned to you, my bold brother, who was sharing with the Islamic terrorist, he's had so many threats on his life and his family. He's had people sit next to him on a bus and tell him the names of his kids, where he lives. He's had guys show him weapons, threaten him. He's gone into hiding several times. Satan knows who he is. Satan will do any tactic to stop us from preaching the gospel, to stop us from making disciples. I know this is sobering. I can see on your faces. This is like, whoa, this guy, this is intense. Yes, it is intense. Because this is real. This is, we're in a battle. You know, if, if we were in a literal physical war and there were bombs going off all around us and we're in the trenches and we know at any moment we could be killed, we would be living a little differently. We would be a little more serious. It would be sober. And that's what we're in. Even though we don't see the trenches around us, we are in them. And we're on one side or the other. There is no Switzerland here. There's no neutral ground. There's no pacifists. There's no non-combatants in this war. You're in it. We're in it. And at times I think we especially in this country, it's so easy to get distracted away from that. But more and more, aren't we seeing in our culture, in our government, and things that are happening, it's becoming more clear, isn't it? There is a war going on. And so Satan, who is our ultimate enemy, one, wants to pervert the truth, And then secondly, he wants to thwart the gospel. Thirdly, and here we are, yes, he does bring temptation. He employs temptation as one of his tactics, one of his schemes. He's called the tempter in Matthew chapter 4. He even tried it out on Jesus, if you remember, in Matthew 4, didn't he? And actually, you know, we know of the three famous temptations, but it says there in the gospels that he was tempting Jesus throughout his experience in the desert. And it culminated in those three final ones. And it's interesting to examine those three temptations that he brought before Christ. Remember, he tried to prey on Christ's hunger, his human weakness, being hungry. And then, if you remember, he tried to, he twisted scripture to get Jesus to presume on God, right? He says, throw yourself down. It says, it says in the Psalms that the angels will protect you. And then he tried to tempt Jesus with the promise of glory if he would just but worship him. 
And He uses these same tactics, by the way, on us. He'll try to exploit our weaknesses, our physical weaknesses. He will seek to confuse us about the Scripture. He will entice us with promises of good things because He's a crafty lion. He knows what He's doing. He knows our weak points. And He will use those against us. We're not paying attention. If we don't have the armor on, we can be easily swayed. Now, what if one of His subtle schemes is to get us to believe that we're not really responsible for our sin? Notice that? It started right away in the garden, didn't it? Adam, you blew it, right? And what does he do? It wasn't me. The woman you gave me, Eve, wasn't me. It was this serpent guy. Right? And that continues to this day. In fact, turn to James 3 for a minute. I think it's important we understand this. That there are those who blame their sin on Satan even. That, you know, if Satan wasn't around to tempt me, then I wouldn't sin. Or some even will blame a particular sin or a struggle on a demon, that they're possessed by this demon. That's why they can't help themselves. But what does the Bible say about who is responsible for our sin? Is it that the devil made me do it? Look at James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Notice here, James describes this wisdom. There is a wisdom that leads to sin. It's earthly, natural and demonic. Aha, so Satan is at the bottom of my problem. Demonic, right? It must be because of a demon. That's why I'm struggling with selfishness or bitterness or pride or lust or anger or any of these things. It's not my fault. Well, keep on reading. Look at the next verse, James 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source Satan, demons, and evil spirits? No, wait a minute. He didn't say that, did he? Is not the source your, what is it? Talk to me now. Your pleasures, your passions, your desires. Your, he says. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Yes, Satan does bring circumstances in our lives to tempt us. But notice, the one to blame for our sin is not him. Thus, back in James 1.14, he says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. When that lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's the passions within our own hearts. You know, let's say one of your resolutions was to go on a, on a diet. And I won't ask you to raise hands how many made that resolution, but let's just say what that is. And so you come over to my house and... and uh, uh, we have a lunch, have a dinner together, and then after the meal, I bring out these these nice, warm, steaming brownies that my wife had made. Oh, they're really good. And I stick that plate on the table, 
and you're staring at it. Okay, well, I resolved I'm, you know, going to go on a diet this year, but boy, that smell is wafting in, you know. Oh, these look good. Now, why is it that you want the brownie? Is it because I put it there? Now, if I knew you were on a diet and put it there, I'd be a really, that'd be a, I'd be a bad guy. But, but the reason you want the brownie is not because of me. It's because of you. Right? If I had put a plate of, uh, you know, for me, I, I hate potato salad. So if you could stick a plate of potato salad in front of me, you could, I could stare at it all day, not want a bit of it. But put some nice brownies for my wife in front of me. That was a little harder. Why? Because it's the desires in my in myself that wants that. It's the same way. Yes, Satan may put the brownie in front of us because he knows exactly what it is you like. But the problem isn't the brownie. The problem isn't that he put it in front of you. The problem is our own desire for it. That's why James says, what is the source of quarrels among you? It's our own passions, our own pleasures, our own desires. We must understand the reason that we sin is not because of Satan or someone else or some circumstances in our lives. We sin because we want to. It's the desire within our own hearts. And so Satan tries to awaken those desires through temptation. So what do we do then when it comes to our sin? Well, first and foremost, we need to confess that sin, repent of it, put our trust in Christ, right? Have His Spirit dwell within us so that we have the means to fight. But then also, 1 John 1, 9 tells us to take ownership of our sins, to confess our sins, to repent. 1 Peter 2.11 says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Or Romans 13.13 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We're given a strategy there to deal with our sin. First, don't make any provision for the flesh. Don't put yourself in situations where you could be tempted. Or as Spurgeon once said, we must seek to walk so guardedly in the path of obedience that we may never tempt the devil to tempt us. So don't put yourself in situations where you could be tempted. But secondly, and more importantly, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Cultivate such a love for Christ that no other love will come in front of it. You know, the more I love my wife, the less I desire anybody else. There's a great sermon I'd recommend for you by Thomas Chalmers called The the Expulsive Power of uh, Godly Affection, something like that. And he just talks about that. He said, look, if you love Jesus more, you'll love everything else less. <laughs> so just the, what, what will give us the strength is, is of a more of an affection for Christ. What is it Jesus said in John 15? If we abide in his love, we'll keep his commandments. Satan's temptations will no longer be as appealing. So Satan's strategy, pervert the truth, thwart the gospel. Bring temptation Fourthly, sow discord. One of his schemes is to sow discord, disunity, especially among God's people. Earlier in Ephesians 4, Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then he said, don't give the devil an opportunity. He linked those two things together. 
Opportunity here means a place to reside that Satan can use an angry person to accomplish his purposes and his ends by tempting that person to do further things, further sins in the midst of his anger or her anger. And that will sow discord, won't it? Satan seizes upon unforgiveness, bitterness to sow discord. Those in Corinth, when they were not forgiving a repentant brother, Paul told them this in 2 Corinthians 2, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we're not ignorant of his schemes. Paul says there directly and plainly, bitterness, unforgiveness among one another is a tool Satan will use. A scheme he will use, a strategy he will use in this war. How many times have we seen this in churches? I almost want to ask you to raise your hand if you've been involved in a church split. I'll bet we'd go ahead and do that. How many of you have been involved? Yeah. I don't mean you caused it. I just mean. <laughs> How many of you have caused it? It happens. It's grievous. It's sad. But do you think it's an accident? It's a great tactic by the enemy. Oh, yeah, those church people, they can't even agree on anything. What's so big about Christianity? Satan was listening when Jesus told the disciples, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. So if he can sow discord and disunity, what does the world see? Ah, this Jesus thing. They're like everybody else. Satan is active. And he will use our bitterness to thwart our testimony. Do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to be a tool of the enemy? I don't. So we have to work hard at reconciliation, brothers and sisters. We have to work hard when there's disagreement. We have to work hard when there's conflict, not only among us here, but also and especially in our homes. You want to blow your testimony before your kids and before your neighbors? Just have conflict, fight. Let your neighbors hear you arguing. Satan will use it. Satan will use it. A fifth strategy that he employs in this war is affliction. Affliction. Right? We saw this in Job's life. What did Satan use to try to get Job to curse God? Took out his crops, his livestock, his servants, even his kids, and then his own health, didn't he? Satan uses affliction. We see it all throughout the Gospels, right? What is it that demons would do? It would torment people, right? With illness, epilepsy, madness, self-injury. Luke 13 says, when Jesus healed that woman who was uh, bleeding, he described her as a woman who had been bound for 18 years by Satan with that illness. He was the cause of her affliction. Paul tells of his own affliction in 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12 is... He says, uh, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. To 
keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, the Lord did, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. So we see here a couple of interesting things. Paul recognized this particular affliction was brought about by Satan. And notice here, Paul didn't cast the demon out. He didn't command the demon to leave. He begged God to take this affliction away. And God said no. (laughs) Which is another interesting thing. God is able even to use affliction by Satan who means it for evil. God will use it for good. We have to remember this too, by the way. Satan is not an enemy who can roam about doing whatever he wants. Remember, he had to ask permission from God in regard to Job's life. He is not sovereign in this. God will even use Satan, our enemy, in order to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. That is amazing. We'll talk more about that as we move forward in the future. So know that even when Satan brings affliction... God can use it for good. Those are just five schemes I want us to be aware of. There are many others. This isn't an exhaustive list, but I think I wanted to focus on those things I see our enemy use on a consistent basis. We must be aware of these schemes, how he uses affliction, how he uses temptation, how he seeks to thwart the gospel, how he seeks to pervert the truth and sow discord among us. We need to know these things, be reminded of these things, be on the lookout. That's why Peter said, be sober, be on the alert. He says, look, guys, this is serious. Are you paying attention? Peter says, because this lion's on the loose. Looking for someone to devour. So Satan and his demons are roaming about among us. We're not alone. In this war. Remember how Paul began his final charge. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Find your strength in Christ. And then he says, put on the armor of God. There is a defense that we have. We'll talk about that defense in the coming weeks together. But as we come to a close this morning, there's one thing that we all need to be remembering as we enter into 2024. I just want to say one more time, every one of us, everyone in this world is in this war. The lines have been drawn. God on one side, Satan on the other. And everyone in this world is on one of those two sides. Again, there's no neutral ground. There's no... Middle ground. There's no pacifists in this. No spectators like those who thought they could watch the battle eating lunch. And the question you need to ask yourself this morning is which side are you on? First John 3 makes very clear there's only one side or the other. It says these words, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
By this, the children of God and the children of the devil. Notice just two categories. By this, they are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John says, look, only two categories. Children of God, children of Satan. And they're evident by how they live. Not that they earn the status as child of God by being righteous. That only comes through Jesus Christ. But if that has taken place, if you put your trust in Him alone, then He will transform us by His Spirit to help us, to enable us to live lives that bear fruit. But if you have not put your trust in Christ alone, acknowledge to Him that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You're not God's child. John says here. And it's not again that, well, I'm just I'm not against God, but but I'm not, you know, for him either. No, no, no. It's either you're a child of God or, as John says, a child of Satan. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians chapter two. That we are all dead in sin and without Christ, we are children of wrath. He described it in that way. Because we are destined for wrath because of our sin against a good and holy and righteous and loving God. But God sent His own Son to rescue us from Satan's clutches. As in Colossians 1, He says to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. How does that happen? By recognizing that, that I have sinned against God, that, that all of us have, that I do need a Savior, that the only way I can be saved is by putting my trust in Him alone. No good work that I do, no effort that I do, nothing is going to save me or make me right with God. Except to put my trust in Him and His death on the cross, that that was sufficient to pay for my sin. Grant eternal life. That's exactly what the most famous verse in the Bible says in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. To go from being a child of Satan in His domain and kingdom to become a child of God. I remember a popular... uh, rock singer in the 1970s. And he was talking about this vision that he had. It was a vision early in his career. And in this vision, he had seen a a picture image of Satan who, who told him, if you would dedicate your life to me, you will have riches, fame, women, whatever you want. And so this guy did that. And he had whatever he wanted. See, Satan can only offer the riches of this earth. Christ offers the riches of heaven. Satan can only offer temporary pleasures. Jesus offers himself. That's enough. 